Reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the, of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's just look to the Lord in prayer for a moment. Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, we need your spirit to move among us, to work in us all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to open our ears, our eyes, our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us here this morning. Father, we pray that you just help us to leave whatever cares and concerns and anxieties and sins and burdens we may have brought into this place before your throne and to look to you to speak by your word and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Lord's Day, I said that Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I went looking for that quote this week, and I couldn't find it. So I'm not sure if that was Jonathan Edwards. To be honest, it sounds a little bit more like Charles Spurgeon to me. But whoever said it, it's true. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And whoever said it, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, would have agreed. Having established right off the bat in Lord's Day 1 that our only comfort in life and in death can only be found in belonging, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, the author of the Catechism went on to ask, how many things are necessary for you to know in order that you may live and die joyfully in this comfort. And the very first thing that we need to know is how great our sins and misery are. I know that's, that's kind of a downer. That's, that's probably not what most people go looking for at church this close to the Christian, or Christmas season. I, I'm relatively certain not one of you woke up today thinking, I sure hope the pastor takes time this morning to remind us of how great our sin and misery are. 
But we saw last week that the Christ of Christmas was very specifically named Jesus. That was the name that God gave to him through the angel who spoke to Joseph. And he did so because he came to save his people from their sins. That's the point of all of this. Advent and Christmas are not about the coming of a baby. They are about the coming of our Savior. The angel said as much to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, that passage that we're all so familiar with, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, I think if we were to survey a group of people, any group of people, large or small, whatever their age may be, and to ask the very simple question, what would you like for Christmas? I would venture to say it would be rare for someone to say, all I want for Christmas is a Savior. Although it does kind of have a ring to it. Maybe Mariah Carey should do a rewrite and give it a try. But never mind what we want for Christmas. This is about what we need for Christmas. And all we really need at Christmas time and throughout our lives is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That applies to everyone here, to everyone watching, to young children, to young adults, to old adults, to everyone. We love our things. We love our toys. And we always want more. That never stops. We never outgrow it. But in the end, it's not the one who dies with the most toys who wins. Rather, Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through that same Jesus who was born in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Indeed, we need a Savior. Actually, we need the Savior. And we learn this from the law of God, which teaches us in summary that the only thing that God requires of his people is to love the Lord our God with half our hearts, a good bit of soul, that's important, and probably at least 10% of your mind. Except that's not what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the original reference to that, God threw all your strength into the mix, just in case it seemed a little bit too easy with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus went on to say, this is the great and first commandment, but wait, there's more. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just in case, nobody here would think this, but just in case we thought that Jesus was giving us a loophole, that what Jesus is doing is substituting something less for something greater, telling us that God's law no longer matters at all because now we simply go by the law of love. An expression, by the way, that is not used anywhere in either testament of Scripture. 
Just in case we were tempted to think that, he went on to say, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment in the light of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, sometimes called the love chapter. That's also an expression that is not used anywhere in Scripture. But there in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, some have taken that to mean that love is everything. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. That's not what Paul was saying. In fact, he's not commenting at all on whether it would be a good thing to have all faith or to give away everything to the poor or to accept martyrdom as the cost of discipleship. He's saying that those things without love amount to nothing at all. But in fact, the illustration that he's making there in those early verses of 1 Corinthians 13 depend on the fact they get their significance from the fact that those would all be really good things to do as long as we do them out of love. In a similar way, Jesus is not saying that as long as you have love, you don't need the law and the prophets. He's saying that in fact, the law and the prophets hang on their significance depends upon whether or not we love God with all of our being and also love our neighbors as ourselves. So then, here's the deal. If you can perfectly love God with all of your being, and if you can perfectly love your neighbor as yourself all the time, perfectly keeping all of God's law, and I do mean perfectly, then at least you're not increasing your debt. The thing is, nobody's perfect, right? We say it all the time. Nobody's perfect. We say it as an excuse. But Romans 3 doesn't offer it up as an excuse. As it is written, Paul wrote, none is righteous. None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the apostle follows that up in verse 20, writing, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, that first and great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, which is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if we grasp that, then we understand we need a Savior. The Bible tells me so, and very specifically, we need a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, the Lord. That's why he came. And that's why he was called Jesus, which literally means God saves. Because he delivers us from all our sins and saves us, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in any other. As Peter said, speaking to the rulers of the people and the elders in Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone 
and there is salvation in no one else. That's why we proclaim the gospel to the world. That's why we tell people about the lordship of Jesus Christ, our Savior, because outside of Christ there is no hope. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, our Heidelberg Catechism summarizes all of this by saying God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full either by ourselves and by our, or by another. But we already saw we are not capable of making that payment. It's like we were born a million dollars in debt. And so if we just kept up with our bills day by day by day, we'd still be a million dollars in debt. And the fact of the matter is we can't even keep up with our bills day by day. Every day we increase our guilt. And knowing that we cannot pay this ourselves, the Catechism asks what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? And we are taught, first of all, that he must be truly human. That's why Christmas is actually important to us in the church. That's why Christ's birth at Bethlehem as a real and true human being, the offspring of the Virgin Mary, is of immense importance. Because only a true human being could die for our sin. It was a human being who brought sin into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, the Apostle Paul says. It needed to be another human being who would bring salvation into the world by dying and paying the penalty for that. John touches on this reality in verse 14, writing, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, who was God, became true human Flesh. If the Lord is willing, we'll be looking at this a bit more at our Christmas Eve service. But for now, note that John does make clear that for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and was incarnate. He was made flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Savior that we need had to be truly human. It was absolutely necessary but he could not be merely human. And I think that's where the emphasis needs to be these days because we have a lot of people who have no problem with a human Jesus born and laid in a manger at Bethlehem, growing up in first century Palestine, living and walking those roads in Judea and Galilee, teaching wise things out of the old covenant, out of God's law, aren't very many people that have a problem with that. You'll even run into some people who overtly claim to not believe in God who will admit that nevertheless, if humanity would just live by the, the laws that Jesus laid down in the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a far better place. Jesus had to be human, but he could not be merely human because that's not enough. To have a good example, to have a great teacher, to have somebody who shares a great foundation for morality with us. It's just not enough. 
we need a savior. We need someone who can actually pay the penalty for our sins. Again, the catechism tells us no mere creature, not a mere man, certainly not bulls and goats and the other animal sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. If Jesus Christ was merely human, that we are still in our sins and we have no hope whatsoever because no mere creature could do what he did. Rather, he must be more powerful than all creatures, that is, he must also be true God. And I think that's why John was compelled by the Spirit to begin his gospel with the words that we read just a few moments ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because our very salvation depends on this. The good newsiness of the good news requires that the sacrifice that was made for our sin be more than mere man and more than some animal, more than exemplary. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and delivers others from it. Therefore, our mediator, our Savior, must be true man, yes, but also God of God. As we are taught in the Nicene Creed, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now the newer translations shy away from that word begotten um, because people tend to think of it in the wrong way. They tend to think of Jesus as having been born somehow in time and space. But it's a single word, only begotten, in the Greek, and it's like um, only generated or something, but it's the, the sense in Scripture is not to do with Christ coming into the world or coming into the universe at a particular moment in time and space, not at all. It's summed up in that line, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is indeed the Word who was God. And so that we would not be tempted to think that the word was merely the first emanation of the creator, or worse still, the first created thing, John went further in verse 3, informing us that all things were made through him, that is, through the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. The Apostle Paul made this even clearer in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And not just all created things on earth, but all things. Not just the created things that came after himself, just all things. All things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. There it is again. We're created through him and for him. Furthermore, Paul says he is before all things, as one would rightly expect of the one who created all things. And in him all things hold together. 
You find that kind of repetition in a Greek manuscript where, where Paul or some other author just keeps all things, all things, all things. Sit up and pay attention. He's making a point. In him all things hold together. The writer of the Hebrews also emphasizes this, writing that the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. And we talked about this several weeks ago. No mere creature could do any of this. No mere creature could create all things. No mere creature could sustain all things by the word of his power. And when we grasp that, then John's previous statement becomes abundantly clear. The word, Jesus Christ, our Savior, was and is God. Not too long ago, I was driving around, and I saw a bumper sticker that read, My boss is a Jewish carpenter. And yes, I get it. I know what they're trying to say. I respect the sentiment. But really, it's, it's not true. If they're talking about Jesus, and I assume that they are, then yes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as a child, as a young man, he probably helped Joseph with the family business, although we have no scripture to point that out, definitely. And John would go on, two verses later, to say, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And that's only possible because before Christmas, before the incarnation at Bethlehem, even before the foundation of the world, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word already was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our series in this Advent and Christmas season is entitled, What's in a Name? And as I mentioned last Lord's Day, when it comes to the various names of Jesus, what's in a name? Everything. So I want to end this morning with Lord's Day 6 from the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think summarizes for us these truths in a really beautiful way. I'm going to read the questions, and I'll ask you to please join in the answers, which will be on the screen. Why must our mediator and deliverer be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands it. Man has sinned. Man must pay for his sin, but a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he also be true God? so that by the power of his divinity he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And who is this mediator? True God, and at the same time truly human and truly righteous. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to set us completely free and to make us right with God. This is our mediator, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May we pray. Father, it would have been well within your right to abandon this creation in its sin, to let it go, to simply destroy it or let it destroy itself. And yet because of your great mercy and love, from the very beginning, you promised that one day a Savior would come who would break the authority of the serpent and who would set right all that has been made wrong by sin, who would reconcile all things to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that precious gift, for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for the grace that we need to truly look to him in faith and through him to you. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone here, anyone in our families or among the circle of our friends who has not turned away from sin and trusted in Christ and found salvation in him, that, Father, you may give us words to speak, to proclaim the glorious gospel of your grace. And we pray that they may hear and that your spirit may work and give life. And, Father, we pray that they may turn to you and find salvation in the name of Jesus. For truly, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's in his glorious and holy name that we pray. Amen.